You know, we, we've known each other for nearly two decades, and uh, our, our doctoral work overlapped, and we've uh, spent a lot of time in different places talking about many of these things, and uh, I've always enjoyed your, your company and your scholarship and really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to have some time with you today. And when, when Father John and I first met, uh, I had a lot of hair, and he didn't have a whole lot of hair, and uh, so we, we switched. Right, so we we switched, and uh, he had he had a beard before having a beard was cool. And uh, I mentioned that to him the other day, and he said he would have one after uh, it's passe as well. So that's uh, that's good. Mm-hmm. He also gets to wear this cool outfit, which I really uh, I really like and think is a is a neat thing. But uh, no, I've just been been grateful for uh, for our friendship. Uh, through the years. And so if you could just give us a little idea of where you are right now, what's, uh, you know, some personal things about your life, your family, your ministry, your teaching, uh, just just where you are in that, where you're from, etc. Okay. Thank you for, really for your warm words of friendship. And it really is it's reciprocal. It's d- deeply mutual. And I really appreciate the opportunity of being here with you today. As I think Steve mentioned yesterday that I've probably taught or examined theses or taught courses here probably seven or eight times over the last couple of decades. So I've interacted with students here in a number of ways and a number of times, but never had the opportunity of coming here. So it's really a great pleasure for me to come and be with you all. And I look forward to much, much more conversation in all sorts of different contexts in, in years to come. Um, so a bit, a bit about my background. I'm from England, as you probably realize, I've got an English accent. Um, I've been in America for 20 years. I haven't been able to lose the English accent, but I've been told that it helps because whatever I say, it actually now sounds intelligent. Whether it is or not, I don't know, but at least it sounds intelligent, so I can get away with a lot. Okay. Um, I was born into an Orthodox family. My father was a priest. My great-grandfather was the first priest in England after the revolution. He was sent there in 1926. So uh, Russian emigres after the revolution coming out into that. On my mother's side, um, Lutheran family. Her father was a Lutheran minister. They, her, her parents met while doing graduate work with Karl Barth in Basel, um, so on, on that side. And she goes back to Jakob Burkhardt, the German 19th century historian. So I inherited a lot of books from him, first editions of Luther and things like that I've got in my, in my, in my library, along with Irenaeus and whoever else. Um, grew up in England in a... In a Orthodox family, father of the priest. Like most children of priests in England, I stopped going to church during my teenage years. Yeah, I, that's what I did. My, my brother and sister did the same. I became, a, I became a, an ideological Marxist. Yeah, I started reading philosophy and got into Marx, and my father, and I'm really you know, impressed by his integrity, said, okay, if you want to do that, let's read Das Kapital together. And so we actually worked through Das Kapital at the age of 13 or 14. And then I would have classes in school, in, in the library at school, I would hold classes on the self-evident truth of Marxism for my fellow students. <laughs> so that's what I was doing during my teenage years. And then I got into a whole load of other stuff, all sorts of subcultures and all sorts of different things. Didn't go to church, I don't know, five, six years, whatever it might be. And the age, I was, at the age of 17, I woke up one morning and said, right, enough of all of this, I'm off to a monastery. And my parents let me drop out of school. Yeah? And in the English system, you do O-levels at 16, A-levels at 18. Um, 
during when I was 14, 15, I was getting so bored at school that the, that the, the teachers would let me sit at the back of the class and do my own thing. As long as I didn't interrupt them, I could do my own thing. So I taught myself uh, logic, and I did an O-level in logic when I was 16. So my parents knew I could teach myself, so they were happy for me to drop out of school, and I taught myself A-levels in, in logic and math and so on. Ended up going to university, did philosophy at university, um, so, 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 step back. Age of 17, I woke up, dropping out of school, going off to a monastery. I went to a monastery, an Orthodox monastery in England, really, really beautiful place, and was there. It wasn't with the intention of becoming a monk, but it was just my way of getting back into the church, living the life with them, morning and evening prayer, working, studying, all that kind of thing. And I was there probably about four or five months, from Christmas to Easter, that kind of time. Came back. I decided I didn't want to study theology at undergraduate level in England because of what the, the yeah, it just wouldn't have been what I was interested in. Um, but I knew I wanted to study the early church, the fathers. I'd been reading a lot of people writing about the fathers and knew that's what I wanted to do. And I was most interested and excited by the people who were reading the fathers and connecting it with modern existentialism. Um, Metropolitan John Zizoulos, Being as Commune, I'm sure a number of people have come across that book, the way he relates Cappadocian ontology to Levinas and things like that. So I'd say, okay, well, let's go to university and study philosophy and then do theology after that. So I ended up going to London and specialised in contemporary continental philosophy, then took a year in Greece to learn Greek, then went to university to do doctor, uh, graduate work in patristics. And that graduate work in patristics actually meant basically just meeting my supervisor, Callistus Ware, for, for an hour or two every week, one-on-one, -on -one, working through the fathers one by one with him. Um, and then he suggested doing Irenaeus for my doctoral thesis. I was finishing that. I got invited to come and teach at St. Clair's. That's my background in, in that. My wife is, uh, we, we met at Oxford. Um, we actually had rooms next door to each other in college when we first went up. She was doing doctoral work in English, the Gothic novel. I was doing work in theology. Uh, we were soon an item. Within two years, we got married. We, we reflected that um, we've now been married since 91, so it's 24 years of which we have spent all the time living in academic institutions. 22 years at St. Vladimir's and college housing before that in Oxford. So we are thoroughly institutionalized. <laughs> in, every, in every possible sense, thoroughly institutionalized. And we've got three kids, one of whom is now at Oberlin doing classics and comparative literature. A third year in that, another child who's 15, also doing classics. Classics and computing is what he wants to do. Um, and a daughter who's nine years old, who's, who's probably brighter than the other two, but there we go. <laughs> and she would be happy to remind them of that. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. So uh, you uh, ride bikes. You yeah. T tell us about your hobby with bicycles and. Well, it's on my on the faculty webpage. Yeah, it goes through all the things you mentioned last right. last night about you know, degrees and this that, and the other. I wrote that. I, I, the bio on the webpage is what I wrote. Then my wife rewrote it. Okay, and she took out. I, I did all the stuff about about degrees, books, this that, and the other, and she put all of the stuff in about bicycles and cheese. Yeah. And people use it as an introduction for when, for when I speak all over the world. And the only thing that people remember is the bicycles and the cheese. <laughs> so, so when I meet people from all over the world, his first question to me is, so who's going to win the Tour de France this year? Or what, what kind of cheese do you like? Um, but there we go. So, yes. Um, 
I started collecting vintage bicycles about four, five, six years ago, um, finding them on eBay, rebuilding them with original component parts and all the rest of it. Yeah. Bicycles are beautiful, and the earlier bicycles are even simpler, much more immediate, not as complex as the ones today. Doesn't contribute a great deal of scholarship, but uh, it's enough of a distraction to... Yeah, and riding a bike, should I ever get time to do it, is a great way of, of freeing the mind, thinking through issues, mm-hmm. especially if you're doing it by yourself, you're just, yeah. just a solitary motion. And so mm-hmm. on. Yeah, very good. Beautiful way. So your, your tradition, uh, born into an Orthodox family on your maternal side, Lutheran. Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Um, how, have, how have those two traditions, which are, um, you know, the, the similarity, of course, is in the Reformation, they had a common uh, opponent, uh, Melanchthon and the, yeah. and the um, Patriarch. But what, what are your, uh, the way that they've influenced you just as a, as a person, as a scholar, as a churchman, um, how have those two traditions fed into where you are? So, the, the context of my early life is growing up in the church, serving at the altar, all that, those kind of things, hearing the hymnography, um, and then coming back into the church with all of that. I don't know how familiar you are with um, Orthodox hymnography. Most of our hymnography goes back to the 6th, 7th century, 8th century. It's really early. And it's all in the kind of exegetical key that we were talking about last night. Yeah typological reading, spiritual reading of scripture, using the imagery from scripture. Almost all of it is this scriptural exegetical poetry, um, precisely in that key. So, so that's been in my ear the whole time. Yeah? Um, I said I came to St. Vlad's in 93. I wasn't ordained until 2001 when I was tenured as a professor. They committed to me, I'm committed to them. Okay, let's go for ordination. This is where my ministry is going to be. I've got a context and all the rest of it. Um, in St. Vladimir's, we have daily morning and evening services. Yeah? So 45 minutes to an hour in the morning and in the evening. Again, with all this exegetical poetry going on and psalmody, lots of psalmody. So there's a lot of scriptural material going into all of that. I'm emphasizing it as probably the, the primary component of my context, which enables me to do the kind of thing I'm doing. Um, so that's how I'd say the, the Orthodox part has played into that. The, the Lutheran part, not really, because I've never kind of self-consciously thought about it. Although, um, Yaroslav Pelikan, mm-hmm. yeah, he also came from a, from a Germanic Slavic background, and he said his father made a comment to him, and now he was going to tell me, mm-hmm. his father commented to him, thank goodness you've got a Slavic soul and a German mind, and not the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> not the other way around. So, you know, <laughs> it would have been rough. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, to, you know, when, when I'm thinking, I can feel, you know, my German is coming out when I'm reading Heidegger, when I'm doing this, that, and the other, but I've never, at least in my earlier form, formative years, never really kind of explored Bart or anything like that. So that's the background I came out of um, into reading the early church. Um, but your question is, you know, how has all of that shaped what I do? How do I interact with, with my tradition and, and scholarship and all those kind of things? Um, I'm really not sure. I'm really not sure. I do not think of myself, and this is going to sound a really ridiculous comment, but I do not think of myself as an orthodox theologian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't self-identify, as it were, as an orthodox theologian doing orthodox theology. Yeah? I mean, okay, 
I'm a dean of the seminary, I'm a priest, I've got a beard, I've got a great big cross, I'm wearing a black dress, you know, maybe I don't need to self-identify as that. It's, it's kind of, there are a few giveaway signs here. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think in any of the work I've done, written work or in the way I tend to talk, I don't think I ever use the word orthodox. Yeah, I didn't use it last night. And what I never said this is an orthodox perspective on scripture. This is this is what it is. Yeah, um, I think to do anything less sells yourself short. So, in, when you when you think of the work that you're doing in scholarship, yeah, um, is it is it primarily for the Orthodox Church? Is it primarily I, for the academy? Is it for yourself? How how would you? Uh, understand the, the, the role that you play as a, as a scholar who is a churchman? <clears throat> um, let me, let me g- give, give two different parts of response to that. The first one maybe not as directly related, but I think might help understand why I don't think of it as being you know, orthodox scholarship upon. <clears throat> um, uh, I've been teaching for, for 20 years at St. Vlad's, and I think the best thing that happened is a change in century. From January 2000, I would actually say in class, this is how they did it in the last century. Yeah. A, month ago. A, month a, month ago. A, a month ago, the last century, it's so passe. Yeah. But, but you know, we, we've spoken about this, you know, about, about Kelly and people like that, Grillmeyer, I mean, the, the kind of work that they were doing, I just couldn't do anymore. And wh- what I mean by that is the way that the fathers were studied from Harnack to the mid-late 20th century, was primarily as confirmation of a dogmatic system. Yeah, you, you, you know what theology is. It, you've got Trinity, you've got Christology, you've got this, that, and the other. And then you read the Fathers for confirmation of these different points. And lo and behold, what they all teach is all the same, and it's what you knew anyway. Yeah? Um, it, you know, the, the, in the Orthodox circles, it was, it was referred to as a neo-patristic synthesis. You, you made a synthesis out of all the things that they said. Um, and so one, I, I, one would then do that confessionally. You know, a Catholic would read the Fathers looking for points of Catholic theology and saying, look, Rome, clear. <laughs> yeah, Irenaeus refers to the primacy of Rome. You, there we've got it. Yeah? Um, and whatever other kind of points one might you know, battle off with, with the Fathers, and I guess the same thing happened with Scripture. You know, you're, you're fighting confessional interpretations with regard to Scripture. Um, and I think for, for you it's also the same as me that what really changed us out of all of that is engagement with particular fathers. Yeah? Spending a long time just reading one father and learning to hear them. Yeah? Um, and it takes a huge amount of time to do that because actually what it requires is thinking in a different way than you've thought. It's not, you know, kind of starting with what you know to be the truth and then finding points of confirmation. It is al- suspending what you think to be the truth and allowing, in your case, Cyril, in my case, Irenaeus, to show you a vision of all of this. Yeah? And it's much more exciting, much more exciting. And, and so to, to take that one step further, the image I would then use is not that of a, of a confessional, systematic, synthetic reading of Scripture. Uh, of, of the fathers, it would be the image of a symphony. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So rather than think of the fathers all saying, you know, the consensus of the fathers is Christ is divine and human. Right. Well, you know, great big deal. It's not really telling you much. Um, to think of it as a symphony where you've got different voices at different times and different voices at the same time. Yeah? Each bearing witness to their faith in a given historical context. Each articulating 
what they saw to be the truth in their particular story. I mean, it's, it's really obvious, really. I don't know why it took so long to get there. Um, because that's what they are. They're historical figures in particular times, in particular contexts, battling with whoever they're battling, the Gnostics or Arius or whoever it might be, um, and trying to articulate the, the truth of their faith. And what we have then is a series of distinct witnesses to the faith which all together form a symphony. Yeah? Uh, a symphony is primarily made up of different notes at any one point and different notes across time. It's to use fancy terminology. It's synchronically and diachronically polyphonous. Okay? And then the goal is not to read through these early figures to confirm what you already know, but rather to read through these early figures and learn to be harmonized to that symphony. Yeah? so that you can now sing your part today. And it may be different than what went before. Yeah? You know, but the only way you're going to be part of that melody is to go through the score of the earlier movements yeah? and learn how this symphony is working so that today you can sing whatever it is that needs to be sung, which will pick up on elements from earlier in the movement, but will configure them in a different way. Yeah? And it's not a matter of doing a system in mm. that. It's a matter of singing that part. And so in doing that, um, it requires absolute disciplined historical scholarship to be able to hear Irenaeus, hear Origen, hear Athanasius, hear all these different figures. Yeah? Absolute, real historical scholarship. And the more you do it, the, the harder it gets, right. the more disciplined it has to be. But then in doing that, you become formed as someone who can actually speak for today. Yeah? Right. And then, who am we speaking for today? Everybody. Right. Yeah. Right. And if you're doing it vigorously, you're doing it on the highest academic level for the academy. You're, right. you're you know, writing new editions of texts, commentaries mm. on texts. Mm. You're doing all of that really heavy textual work, but you're also doing it on a popular level where you're speaking to everybody in the pew. Right. Well, and you know, when, when you and I started this, uh, most of those who were doing patristics we're still doing it in the tradition of Kelly yeah. and Grillmeyer yeah. and, and Stuart Hall and, and yeah. others um, who are doing that sort of work. And, uh, and people, people are getting so dissatisfied with that that they're doing precisely. anything apart from theology. Precisely. You know, any kind of late antique studies, whatever, you know, different aspects of it, that. Exactly. And, at, that. At, at Naps, but, yeah. most of what was going on at Naps was, was late, late antique. antiquity. It yeah. wasn't, wasn't patristics. They weren't actually reading yeah. these texts themselves. And yeah. um, I, I know for me, coming out of a tradition where most people had heard of Augustine, perhaps, and, and maybe no one else, but um, th there wasn't really a great need to pry me away from uh, some commonly held notions in my own tradition, but in terms of scholarship, having the opportunity to just delve into Cyril and to spend all of my time there. So in your context, what, what was it or who was it, perhaps, who, who suggested to you uh, or perhaps it was just self-discovered, that to spend time reading the text themselves and not reading them through Kelly, through Grillmeyer, um, through this, this uh, patristic scholarship as it was... In well, the it was my supervisor who recommended um, Irenaeus. Um, but if I were to look back at the work I did for my doctoral thesis compared to what I do with him now, very, very right. different. So it just takes time. It just takes a huge amount of time. Right. 20 years of reading Irenaeus. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So what? And what, origin and data figures and absolutely. so on. Absolutely. So what are what are you doing now? We we talked about uh, your work on origin. What are what have yeah. you? You're in the process of doing work with with these texts themselves, not just the the interpretations of these texts, but how these texts ought to actually be read. Um, yeah. What what are some of the things that scholarship was you're doing with regard to the to the text and the fathers that would inform how they might be read? So. I started teaching in 93, my lectures changed over many years, and then those lectures became the basis of the way to Nicaea, the Nicene faith, and I started writing a project of books like that. Um, I got to the end of the Nicene faith, end of the 4th century, and realized if I wanted to go further, and I wanted to go up to John of Damascus, cover the council, peer to the council, so on, I'd have to do some work on Diodor and Theodore, because nobody had really done sufficient work, edited the fragments that remained, translated them, provided a coherent understanding of them, so I did a book for Oxford on that. That took a huge amount of time. Then Oxford asked me to write a book on Irenaeus, for a different series, you know, uh, the, the Irenaeus in context, Christian theologians in context. And that was really worthwhile, going back to Irenaeus um, after 20 years of you know, reading him but not really focusing in on him. And then working on Irenaeus like that um, has really taken me back to the Gospel of John. Yeah, this time I was so struck by how, how Irenaeus sees himself so clearly coming out of Polycarp, coming out of John. And the context for that, and the way I now read Irenaeus provides a very different way of reading the Gospel of John, which kind of Ashton is kind of getting there, but not quite. And uh, My next book will be on the Gospel of John as a Paschal Gospel. Right. Yeah, not Trinity and Incarnation, but, but as a Paschal Gospel. And we could talk about that because it's really fascinating. Um, but what I'm doing currently is I'm just finishing off a new edition of Origin on First Principles, a new, new critical edition and translation. <coughs> because I realized uh, over these 20 years of teaching that the most important thing I can do for students, my students, is show them how to read texts. Yeah, it's not a matter of, um, I don't know, understanding a great big systematic theology. It's really helping a student to read through a text with understanding and to actually engage with the greats, the texts which have stood the, the, the test of time. Yeah? And so that's most of my teaching now at St. Flair's is te simply textual. I almost very rarely give lectures anymore. We simply, I'm doing a, an elective course this semester on Irenaeus, and all we're doing is reading through Irenaeus. You know, I've read it every year for the last 20 years. They're struggling with it for the first time. But the discipline of reading it and understanding and how is this text working and how is he constructing the argument and all those kind of things, that, that discipline of learning how to read a text, um, part of that has also resulted in... Uh, producing new texts and translations, which is a huge amount of work, but will survive. You know, the typical monograph would be out of date in 10 years' time. <laughs> it just, however good a commentary and interpretation it is, it, it's not the text itself, it never will be. So to edit the text and translate the text um, makes it accessible and will influence readers of the text for, for generations to come. So that's, in my opinion, the most important work I can do. So in patristic studies, uh, what, what do you see is the most uh, hopeful area of progress that's being made in patristics right now? Are, are there things that you, you see in scholarship, directions yeah. uh, that you're, you're hopeful about? Yeah. I think it is breaking out of the mold of thinking that Kelly, for instance, is theology right. to actually reading the text 
and learning to hear what they're doing as they're doing it, which brings together exegesis, theology, the whole different kind of things we were talking about last night, um, as a unified whole. Yeah? And patristic scholars are, are starting to do that. You know, you're doing it, I'm doing it, Carla. There, there are a number of people who are actually doing that and realizing this is really what we're, we're doing. But what's really hopeful is that people in scriptural studies departments are also coming to the same kind of conclusion. Yeah. I mentioned a few names last night, like Richard Hayes and uh, John Ashton, I would say, uh, a number of other people, um, Joel Marcus, uh, actually starting to realize the kind of intertextuality of Scripture and how it's all together. And that is the mold in which the, the fathers were working. What, what so do you so think? The, the kind of convergence of that across disciplines, sure. is for me, and across traditions, is really the most hopeful thing I, I see. What do you think is the greatest barrier from the... St- from the biblical studies, the scripture study side, to participate in this conversation with the fathers and patristic scholars uh, like yourself, what what do you, what do yeah. you see as the biggest barrier they have for coming to the table? It was interesting. I was reflecting just a moment. I was talking to somebody, and the, the conversation came up last night. We we're talking a lot about theological interpretation of scripture. Yeah, maybe that's kind of a misleading title, because maybe to be even more provocative, it is reading scripture as scripture. Yes. <laughs> you know, as I point out, you say, for something to count as scripture in antiquity, you would read it in a particular way. Yeah? Uh, the, so the real difficulty in my mind, um, and what, for, for biblical scholars and what they're kind of working out of, is that they've become so accustomed to calling this text scripture without recognizing that you're only calling it scripture within a particular mode of reading it as scripture and then reading it in a different context of modernity, historicism, enlightenment, whatever else goes into that. Yeah? And so you're then reading it as a... You're not reading, in my opinion, from the early church point of view, you're not actually reading it as scripture. You're reading it as a historical document. And those aren't two, two same things. They're right. two different things. To re- you know, yes, it's a historical document. It was written in time, it's edited, it's redacted. Just to understand the words on the page you need a rigorous historical study. Right. The words are now 3,000 years old. Yeah? Just to understand the very words on the page, you need every disciplined historical study to be able to do that. But reading it like that is not yet reading it as scripture. To read it as scripture is something else. At least for the early Christian tradition. Going back to the apostles and the evangelists yeah. themselves, going back to Paul himself, and to read it read as scripture is a very particular thing. Mm. It's not in the way that we might read it today. Yeah. It's interesting, we're so used to reading all sorts of different types of literature as different genres, mm. but then when we come to Scripture, we, we, we don't pay any attention to that. We just To that as a genre. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, as a, you know, yeah. What is a genre of literature as Scripture? Right. right. Yeah, you know, the, the genre of a cookbook is very different to the genre of a murder mystery. Right. You don't right. re- they're both texts, but you don't read it read the same right. way. Yeah? Mm. For a text to count as Scripture, it's a particular genre, and it is read in a particular way. Yeah, yeah. Very helpful. What I'd like to do is open the, the yeah, floor absolutely. to any questions that people might would have. And um, so if you if you have a question, if you're just kind of uh, motion, Edgar uh, here has a, a microphone so that we can be sure to get your to get your questions. So if you can um, kind of motion in this direction, if you have any questions, we'll uh, we'll find you and and pass it along to you. So. All right. Well, thanks again, uh, Father Bayer, for being here and, and uh, giving us your, your insights. Um, one of the things that we talked about last night, 
you know, that kept coming up was, um, you know, where do we, I guess, maybe draw the line? Where's a, a via media uh, between maybe a historical and more theological? I think there's harm in going to the extreme in either, either side, obviously. Um, but I, I thought of, you know, we, we talked a little bit about uh, Matthew 1 and Matthew's genealogy. And it's clear to me that uh, there's an artistic arrangement there. You know, even with, I think, Dr. Coral's book and others have made a compelling argument, at least to me, for the gematria uh, and pointing towards Matthew's, you know, portraying Jesus as the promised Davidic yeah. king. Yeah. So where, as biblical studies guys, a New Testament guy, where do we draw the line? We, you know, we want to appreciate, you know, what Dr. Quarles has said and others have said as far as the artistic arrangement, the theological you know, usage there, in, like in Matthew 1, for instance, but where do we draw the line in, in not reading too much, maybe? Oh, I think we're invited to read too much. <laughs> I, mean, I think we're invited to, to, to plunge in. Uh, it, it's, you know, it is the book about which there's so much to be said that, that one can do it. Um, the, the idea of artistic arrangement, that, that very clearly brings up um, Irenaeus' image of the mosaic. Yeah, scripture's like a mosaic depicting a king. Yeah, and his opponents have taken the, the stones and rearranged them and made a picture of a fox. And then he adds, and a bad picture of that. <laughs> you just, just rub it in a little bit. Um, but the term of arrangement is interesting because the term arrangement in antiquity would be economia. Yeah, the arrangement of, of these stones in the mosaic, the arrangement of the artistry depicting the king in this way. And it's really interesting that um, the fathers, early church, never spoke about salvation history. Yeah? They just never did. As far as I can find out, the first person to talk about Heilsgeschichte, salvation history, was Johann Chrysostom von Hoffmann in the 1780s. Yeah? They, did, they, they just didn't have the term salvation history. We, we automatically think that's what they're talking about. Yeah? And we hear the term history, and we get into a romantic notion of history and salvation, and all that kind of thing. They use the term economia. Yeah? When, when you read a patristic text and it says salvation history, it's translating the word econom economy. The economia, the arrangement. Okay? It's artistry. It's an arrangement. It's the arrangement of the mosaic on the tile depicting a king. It can be done narratively as an arrangement. You know? The movement of, of the people of God from Egypt to the promised land. Well, that's our movement from the Egypt of this world through the waters of baptism to this world as a desert in which we're living as sojourners to this world as a promised land in which the cross is a tree of life. I mean, that's a, it's the same narrative. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and with, with von Hoffmann, um, for example, he, he has these arrangements or, or these predictions in the Old Testament that are all uh, mixed up and jumbled up. Yeah. And fortunately... Uh, later, those things have to be put together, and now we see this this picture. But it's it's um, uh, you know these are historical events that have to be drawn into some sort of um, uh, you know future picture. Yeah. Um, we, we have to, but to take up the, your question your question further, and I don't know how much time we've got. But once I start talking, I tend to talk, and I don't want to interrupt. But I think what I'm going to say would be provocative that everybody else will find it interesting. We have to be really quite careful about the question of history. Yeah? Really, the question in all of this is, what is our criterion of truth? And we've made history into our criterion of truth. Yeah? But as a matter of fact, we never say that Christ is true. If we were to say he's true, we are judging him by another criteria. Yeah? And actually, that criteria then becomes our God, yeah? by which we're judging him. We don't say he's true, we say he's the truth. He is our criteria of truth. 
Yeah? So historicity and the truth of historicity is not the criteria of truth. Okay? And then the question is, okay, what is history anyway? Yeah? Augustine's very clear about that in his confessions at the end, and we've got to take him seriously. There is no such thing as the past. There is no past. Yeah? Um, I can't show you the 2nd century. I can't show you the 10th century BC. There is no past. All we've got is the past in the present. Yeah? Archaeological remains, manuscripts, memories. That's actually all that is, is the past in the present. And then the only question is, how are you going to interpret the past in the present? So what we call history, and we try to desperately hold on to as our reality, you know, this is reality, this is what really happened and so on, is in fact our reconstruction on the basis of the past in the present. And then the only question then becomes, what's the basis for your reconstruction? How are you constructing the past in the present into the reality of the past, into which you've now invested so much? Yeah? Um, so the discipline of history interprets the past in the present in a particular way. The most plausible ways according to human understanding of how these different elements of, of historical re remnants hold together. Okay, that's fine. Dis as I said, I do disciplined historical work. It's almost all I do. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a historian. Yeah? Uh, but theology is not interpreting it that way. Historology is uh, theology is interpreting the past in the presence in the light of Christ, who alone is. Yeah? So Augustine says there's no past. You've only got the past in the present. He says there's no future. You've only got the future in the present. Hopes, expectations, whatever else it might be. And he says, well, there's no present either. It's gone. Yeah? So the only thing there is, is Christ. Okay? So in antiquity, you judge the truth by what is. Theology judges truth by what is, and Christ alone is. In modernity, we've come to place the truth in the past. Yeah? The truth is what was. Did it really happen or not? Well, in what sense is that a criteria for truth? Good. Okay. Good. Yeah. Next. Uh, you've talked a lot about kind of your historical approach, and I wonder, uh, just kind of from my own curiosity, could you say a little bit about what role periodization and kind of periodizing categories or concepts, even like patristic, for instance, might play in influencing this kind of theory of reading and approach to reading yeah. that, that you use yeah. in the classroom? Yeah. Um, actually, there are two things which one has to say about that. Um, first of all, the question of periodization. You know, we are so used to thinking about the fourth century as the period of Trinitarian debates and then 5th century Christology, yeah? It's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Nobody in the 4th century thought they were doing Trinitarian theology, yeah? And Cyril of Alexandria didn't wake up in the morning and say, okay, they've done Trinity, let's move on to Christology. Yeah? <laughs> it just, it's nonsense. And the only reason we hold on to it is because that is what we've got in our handbooks of dogmatic theology. You start with Trinity, then you move to Christology, yeah? and that's formed the basis for our periodization of this. Okay? In fact, I would argue that all of the debate is ultimately a scriptural, exegetical debate about the subject of Christ. How so everybody accepts script, Scripture, meaning the Old Testament, Scripture's talking about Christ. The question is how. When Proverbs 8:21 says, "The Lord created me," wisdom says, "The Lord created me." 
So Arius takes that straightforwardly. Wisdom said, wisdom which everybody accepted is Christ, yeah, for, you know, the, the wisdom of God. Wisdom says the Lord created me, therefore the wisdom's created. You know, who's to argue with that? It's, it's a fairly straightforward reading of scripture, if you accept the premise about Christological reading and so on. Um, Athanasius responds, says that, well, no, to be created is not a property of God, it's a property of human beings. Therefore, you have to differentiate in how scripture speaks about Christ between how it speaks of him as human and how it speaks of him as divine. Yeah, so the Lord created me speaks about Christ as human. Proverbs 8.21. Proverbs 8.25. Before the hills, he begets me, speaking of him as divine. And he points out that, you know, it's before the hills, so before time, and yet you're using a present tense verb. He begets me. Yeah, not before the hills, he begot me. Before the hills, he begets me. And there is no purpose to it. It's just he begets me, period. Unlike the Lord created me, where it says the Lord created me for the beginning of his work. Yeah? So there's always a point to his being human. There's no point to his being God. It simply is. Okay? So it's an exegetical debate. Now, having differentiated between how Scripture speaks about Christ as God and how it speaks about him as human, you then get people like Diodor and Theodore saying, well, that means you're talking about two subjects. Yeah, you know, here's a human, here's a divine, and so on. Then you have to get Cyril saying, no, it's one subject in two respects. And so it's a continuous exegetical debate about the subject of Christ. Okay? So it's not periodization to Trinity followed by Christology, followed by whatever else it might be. And how would you kind of tackle that pedagogically, like in these seminars where you're reading, well, but the, but, but, but if we the, can't not No, but, but, but the, the, the question um, then is also, not only how do I do it pedagogically, but how does one hear it as a symphony rather than simply a, a cacophony? Yeah? And the only way to do that is to actually read it as the continuous exegetical debate about Christ that it is. Yeah? Which has got different periods, no doubt about it, no, different episodes and so on, but it's this continuous reflection about the, who, who Christ is, who is he, he really, and how we speak about him, how scripture is speaking about him. Yeah? Um, which is why going back to the very beginning is so important. Don't start with the system of doctrine and then go to the 4th century for Trinity, 5th century for Christology, but go back to the very beginning where the foundation of the discourse is evolved. Yeah? Uh, only when you do that in the kind of exegetical, apocalyptic opening of scripture that we were talking about yesterday and today, only when you've done that do you actually know what you're talking about, and then you can hear the conversation that follows. Well, thank you very much for this. It's been uh, really, really rewarding. Uh, just have a question about reading communities. Okay, so um, one of the things that strikes me when I read the the New Testament um, is it seems like there there are diverse communities reading this text or hearing this text. Some are new, the Gentiles, but some are already in. At least they've heard the stories, they know the scriptures, but they don't see. And yet there's this background knowledge of, you know, God's works and who God is and Yahweh. And um, If we're to read Scripture through the lens of Christ and Christ explodes into our vision, the reality of Yahweh or God or all of creation, I mean, how do we, how do, we do that for a reading community, Gentiles, who don't have that background knowledge? How do they get uh, their, their sight acclimated to see the Christ for who he is? And that, that's, that's a, 
I think that's kind of a historical question, but that's just also a very practical question for me. Yeah. How do we how do we have the sight to see? Yeah, I wouldn't say that either community that you're referring to is at a disadvantage or an advantage, right. because those who have inherited the scripture through genealogy and through race are also at a disadvantage because they become so entrenched in ways of reading it that it's hard to read it with a veil lifted, yeah? Whereas those who don't know the material in any other way of reading it, yeah, are much more ready to receive it. But, but they have to then receive it, yeah? There is, for me, um, no other way of doing it. These are the materials textual materials that provide the framework of understanding, of reference, of... The, the, the image I'd use is a, is a treasury, a thesaurus. It's a treasury of, of narratives, poetry, all the different things which you are using to understand him. And the primary, the primary material is always that, not the writings of the New Testament. There's a really beautiful line in Origen yeah, I, I really love Origen, um, especially the, the, the later father who said, I'd rather be wrong with Origen than right with everybody else. <laughs> There's a really beautiful line in Origen where he says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, but pretty close, he says, in the light of the gospel, all things become gospel. Yeah? And there's a kind of a hermeneutic priority in that. In the light of the gospel, these scriptures are now filled with the gospel. You can read Exodus as proclaiming the gospel. Yeah? In the light of this event, you can read that. Yeah? In the light of this event interpreted by this material, you can then look at Plato, like Justin Martyr does, yeah? and say, you know, even there we can find seeds of the truth scattered. You, yeah, hermeneutically, you've got to start with this event interpreted by this scripture, but on the basis of that, you can look at the whole of creation and its history and all the elements as speaking of all of this. Yeah? And then you can also find it in your own life. Your own history is illumined and changes through that encounter. So I mentioned my, my, my rebellious teenage years. Yeah? Um, I can look back at that now and say, even in my wildest rebellious teenage years, when I was going off and getting drunk and doing this, that, and the other, God was leading me to himself. Yeah? But I couldn't have said it at the time. Yeah, nobody could have said it at the time. Yeah? Even if somebody you know, had profound insight and was given prophetic inspiration to be able to see that, would they have been able to tell me? Would it, would it have been right for them to tell me? I would have said, great, let's go get drunk some more. <laughs> it, it doesn't work like that. So my past has been changed in the light of my present. That's why history is such a, such a difficult topic. The reality of my past has changed let alone something 3,000 years ago, my past, which was a wild, rebellious, sinful, adolescent reaction, now has actually become part of the history of my salvation, leading me to him. Which is it? Yeah, that's why history is such a slippery topic. So in the light of the gospel, all things become as gospel, in, in ever-broadening concentric circles, focused on this. Yeah, but, but it always remains that primary material. And you can never substitute. You can't do the passion according to Homer. Or Simpsons, <laughs> I guess. Well, whatever it might be. <laughs> yeah. But in the light of the gospel proclaimed according to these scriptures, you can go to Homer and say, look, there's some elements here that are worth pursuing or worth holding up. Other questions?
so as as we as we wrap up, give us give us your thoughts on um, moving into scholarship for for some uh, PhD students who are here, for example. Um, what what would be the the nugget of wisdom, the piece of advice, the suggestion that you would give to them? Uh, that might also serve as a reminder to, to scholars here who are, who are already established. What would be that piece of advice in moving into scholarship that you would give to them and you would say, if I could leave you with something, this is what I would, I would want to leave you with? Two things. <laughs> Not just one, two things. The, the first is allow yourself to be stretched. Yeah? Don't just think, you know, what do I need to do to, to, to do this? But allow yourself to be stretched because the more you're stretched, the more you're able to do. Yeah? The more you're, you're pulled um, with all the different disciplines in whichever, whichever field you might be in, of, of languages, of hermeneutics, of textual whatever, the more you're able to do with all of that. And the second is um, try, and, try and understand something or someone other than yourself. Yeah? Don't try and do it in terms of, you know, my comprehension of a particular topic. Because if you do that, you, you, you'll, you know, you will, you will gain knowledge of that, but you won't really be challenged to see things otherwise than you currently think. Yeah? And it's a much, much more challenging, much more stimulating and rewarding to try and see something else. That's what I would do. Good. Okay. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you for being here this this uh, week. Uh, uh, we're, I think it's the first time we've had an Orthodox priest uh, on our campus to to uh, participate in scholarship in this way, and we're grateful that you've done that. And thank you for the past twenty years uh, helping us yes. in um, supervising uh, independent studies, uh, working with students and teaching courses with them, as well as uh, the number. I, I was even this morning. I was going through the number of. Of students uh, whose theses you have um, uh, you have examined, and we really appreciate that. It contributes a lot to what yeah. we're trying to do at Southeastern as a yeah. community of scholars. And um, I appreciate your friendship and uh, the scholarship we've been able to do together, and look forward to even more. Um, one of the things at the very outset, probably 15 years ago, or, or maybe a little more, uh, Father John and Khaled Anatolios and I. Uh, we were all really beginning this this journey time, together yeah. about the same time, and so we wanted to get the whole band together and, and go on a, uh, a tour. And so this is uh, maybe the first uh, the first step of the reunion tour. I'm not sure, but anyway, we're we're grateful that you were that you were here at, yeah, at Southeast. It's really been my pleasure to be here. Thank you, thank you everybody.